and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about some new figures showing that there's been a big surge in vacant posts in London, which has left half of the capital's practices operating with fewer doctors than they need when demand is at an all-time high. We're also discussing what the RCGP believes needs to happen to boost GP retention, what the latest NHS appointments data tells us about levels of workload in general practice in England, and NHS England plans to boost capacity this winter. And we'll be looking at the BMA's decision to ballot junior doctors on industrial action. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, Nick, you wrote a story this week about GP vacancies in London, which is based on data gathered by London-wide LMCs. I mean, this is an interesting story because it also shows how vacancies have changed over time. So what did London-wide LMCs find? The figures from London-wide LMCs suggest that around half of the capital's practices have vacancies for GPs. And that's up from just under a third 12 months ago. So it's quite a rapid rise. To to put this in context, London-wide LMCs represent something like 1,200 GP practices. So it's nearly a fifth of practices in the country. Just to explain a bit more why these figures are significant, we've reported a lot on the wider picture around the GP workforce. I mean, last month we reported that the the number of fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs in England had dropped by 300 over the past year. Uh, And we've covered issues such as the fact that numbers of people taking early retirement from the NHS pension scheme are at a record high. But with these numbers London-wide LMCs have produced, the impact of that hit on the GP workforce is translated into how individual practices are affected. And we can see that around half have gaps in their GP workforce and many more have gaps for other staff. Around a third have practice nurse vacancies as well, for example. And so what's the impact likely to be of these shortages? The LMC's gathered some information about how it could impact on services as well, didn't they? Yeah, so the LMC warned that practices could be forced into really tough decisions about the services they provide. Practices are heavily involved in delivering COVID-19 booster jabs this autumn and will once again be delivering a massively expanded flu vaccination campaign this winter. Uh, And in London, practices are also involved in delivery of polio jabs after a health warning. So there's a huge amount of additional workload at the moment on top of consultations running at a record high. And most practices will be struggling with this sort of pressure. And clearly, those unable to fill vacancies could find it harder still. And GP leaders are saying that it could come down to limiting core services so that they can play their role in things like the vaccination campaigns. And the polling by London-wide LMCs also looked at whether practices plan to hand back their contracts in the next three years. And they found that although only 2% said they were planning to do so, a further 12% couldn't rule it out. And one factor I think it's worth bringing up here as well is that we've also reported in recent weeks and months on practices facing serious financial pressures because of higher energy bills this year and inflation driving all sorts of cost pressures up. And the London-wide figures were collected in June and July this year, uh, and the financial situation has become more acute since then. So that could point towards more practices deciding not to fill vacancies because they can't afford to, and maybe drives up the chances of contracts being handed back even further. Emma, I mean, I've been talking about vacancies and recruitment problems, but you've been looking at the other key aspect of the workforce challenge for general practice, which is retention. You've been looking at a major RCGP report on this. What does it say? 
Yeah, so this is a new report from the college um, and it's basically around the importance of retaining the GP workforce. So the report looks at the scale of the problem and then puts forward some suggestions on what needs to be done to address it. So we know that GP retention is a huge challenge and unfortunately it looks like it's set to get worse. So as part of this report, the RCGP's tracking survey found that in England, 42% of GPs said they were likely or very likely to leave the profession in the next five years with 10% likely or very likely to leave in the next year. So that's pretty bad figures. The figures were a little bit lower for Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, but they're still pretty bad. The college says there's this toxic mix of issues driving GPs out of the profession. So high levels of stress and burnout, pension rules, which we've spoken about a lot on the podcast before, workforce shortages, plus also things like family and caring responsibilities. But I guess the real issue underpinning a lot of this is work-life balance. And the really shocking statistic for me in that report was that 23% of GPs across the UK are so stressed that they feel like they can't cope most days or every day. And a further 22% feel this way once or twice a week. 68% of GPs said they don't have enough time to properly assess their patients. So it's not really surprising that people are looking to cut back their hours or leave the profession altogether if so many of them are feeling like this. In terms of what can be done about it, well, the college is really clear that proper steps need to be taken to make the job more doable. They talk about cutting bureaucracy, expanding the multidisciplinary team and more support for relationship-based care. I mean, these are all things that we know the college has been calling for for some time. But what is new in this report is that the RCGP has assessed national and local retention programmes and basically concluded that they need to be overhauled if they're going to make any difference to help retain the workforce. In England, the college wants an additional £150 million a year to be pumped into expanding these schemes, you know, to ensure take-ups maximised and they are effective, and also to make sure that GPs know these schemes are out there. And so they perhaps take a look at this option before deciding to leave the profession. So how does the uh, the National Retention Scheme work currently? So all four UK countries have some version of a retention scheme for GPs, but they're all kind of slightly different. But basically, these schemes offer GPs who are seriously considering leaving the profession or who have recently left a package of educational and financial support. So if you're a GP on the scheme, you become what's known as a retainer. And in England, you work a maximum of four clinical sessions per week, which includes protected time for learning. And then the practice where you work also receives additional funding that basically recognises that the job isn't a normal part time post. And you can be on the scheme for five years. So you find that GPs approaching the end of their career might take up the scheme to scale back working. Um, It's quite useful for people who have caring responsibilities. And it's also good for people who have portfolio careers and maybe only want to do a limited amount of time in clinical practice. But what the RCGP found was that take-up across the country is really patchy and that these schemes are not being used as well as they could be. They also found that some GPs couldn't get onto the scheme even though they wanted to. Some parts of England are not supporting any GPs on a national retention scheme. The college says this is because ring-fence funding for the programme is no longer in place. And some areas basically say it's just too expensive. But, you know, as the college points out, while there are big issues that need to be resolved, you know, overall big issues that need to be resolved to keep GPs in the workforce, in the short to medium term, investing in these potential initiatives could have a big impact. I mean, the college says that investing in schemes like this is much better value than the cost of losing GPs, both in terms of the financial impact of having to train new staff to fill gaps, but also in how losing really experienced staff affects patient care. Was there anything else uh, significant in the report about retention from the RCGP? 
Well, yes, there was a couple of other things they said need to happen. The report talks about the new to practice fellowship scheme, which is to support newly qualified GPs, and which I think is fairly patchy across the country. I mean, the college concluded that that needed to be evaluated and improved and made more consistent and made more consistently available as well across England. The college also says that portfolio careers should be better supported and the idea of mentoring and support for mid-career GPs needs to be seriously looked at. And they also said that as well as the national retention schemes, there also needs to be funding for local retention initiatives that really address challenges that are very specific to each area. And hopefully that would retain more GPs locally rather than them leaving the profession. Next up, NHS Digital publishes data on appointments in general practice every month. At the moment, this data is just published as overall figures for England and for each ICS area. But this is the data that the government has said should be made available at practice level from November this year. Along with showing the number of appointments delivered, the data also show how long people wait for an appointment and how these appointments are delivered. Nick, what did this month's data have to tell us about general practice across England? General practice delivered 26.5 million appointments this August. Uh, And that's a figure that's around 13% higher than the level seen in August 2019 before the COVID pandemic. The total is actually not far off the number of appointments delivered in general practice in November 2019 and in January 2020, winter months when demand is expected to be higher. And it's above the figures for December 2019 and February 2020. The BMA says these figures show that general practice is now managing levels of demand that would usually have been seen in a pre-pandemic winter in the middle of summer. And remarkably, the proportion of appointments delivered within two weeks of booking has actually risen. 85% of appointments were delivered within two weeks in August this year, compared with just over 82% in August 2019. Although, I mean, as we've discussed previously, those figures are not an entirely reliable measure because they don't differentiate between delays and appointments deliberately booked well in advance. Another point to mention from August is that just under two thirds of appointments were delivered face to face. uh, And that's actually the highest proportion recorded by NHS Digital in more than two years. Obviously, you talk there about how high demand is and about it being equivalent to a pre-pandemic winter. But GP leaders have expressed some real concerns about this, haven't they? I mean, there are real fears about how general practice is going to cope in the coming months as we head into winter, aren't there? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned, the BMA says general practice is now dealing with winter levels of pressure in midsummer. And that obviously raises concerns about how winter is going to go. General practice has more than 500 fewer fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs now than it did three years ago. So the profession is facing this huge rise in workload with a depleted workforce. Another factor is the risk of a so-called twindemic of flu and COVID-19 this winter. The UK Health Security Agency has pointed to signs that COVID cases are beginning to rise already. And if flu and COVID circulate widely, as they predict, that will likely drive up staff absences in primary care at the same time as driving up workload. And we've talked about the government's expectation that general practice appointments should be delivered within two weeks. And and since then, the Labour Party's talked about appointments needing to be even faster than that and face to face and with the same GP every time if you want. 
But the government has also admitted that the huge waiting list for NHS hospital treatment is going to continue to grow for the time being. And the existence of that 7 million strong waiting list is a huge driver of pressure on general practice uh, because practices are seeing patients repeatedly while they wait long periods for hospital treatment. But GP leaders say what they're getting from politicians is headline grabbing empty promises rather than meaningful support ahead of what's expected to be an incredibly tough winter. So yes, there is real concern about how general practice will cope in the coming months. Yeah, you mentioned there that um, government expectation, quote, expectation that people should be able to get an appointment within two weeks. And we talked very briefly on the last podcast about the government's plan for patients, which is where that comes from. The Health and Social Care Secretary, Therese Coffey, has this week delivered her speech to the Conservative Party conference. Did we learn anything new about that plan for patients from the speech? There, there wasn't a lot more detail, but there was a hint that Therese Coffey wants to go further than the two-week target. And another line that seemed significant in terms of the focus on face-to-face versus remote access to general practice. So the Health and Social Care Secretary outlined shortly after she was appointed her expectation that GP practices should deliver appointments within two weeks and that urgent patients should be able to be seen on the same day. Um, And in her speech at the party conference, she went a little bit further, saying she would like to be more ambitious. But she, she stopped short of expanding on what that might mean or when any expectation of general practice might actually change. But... Another point she made stood out. Um, She said she was clear that patients should be able to see their doctor promptly, but that she would, open quotes, not be prescriptive on how GPs interact with their patients. So uh, unlike her Labour counterpart a week earlier, uh, Ms Coffey didn't actually mention face-to-face appointments specifically at all in her speech. Um, that in itself seems notable after a year in which research published this week by the um, the British Journal of General Practice found a significant rise in anti-GP rhetoric uh, over the last year, largely around the face-to-face versus remote consultations issue. And clearly, a health and social care secretary saying she won't be prescriptive about how GPs interact with patients seems in stark contrast to, for example, her predecessor but one, Sajid Javid, saying last year that it was high time GPs offered face-to-face appointments to all patients who wanted them, or to the NHS England letter last year on face-to-face appointments that sparked a standoff between its officials and the BMA's GP committee. So uh, clearly, it remains to be seen whether this will translate into a shift in government behaviour or policy around face-to-face access, but any suggestion that ministers will leave the business of deciding how appointments should be delivered to GPs and patients would be something to be welcomed. I mean, we've also seen a bit more detail from NHS England about how they intend to implement this government plan and about how practices might be supported this winter, including details of how any additional funding could potentially come through to general practice from integrated care boards. What do we know about that? So we reported last month that some LMCs had been talking to integrated care boards about support for general practice, particularly around uh, rising cost pressures from energy and inflation more widely. And NHS England has now written to integrated care boards, ICBs, setting out a framework for them to offer support. And the letter says NHS England wants to work out as a matter of urgency where any extra capital investment in general practice could be most effective in terms of boosting resilience this winter, boosting capacity. And it highlights areas uh, that it says have been identified through feedback from practice teams and integrated care systems. 
including IT tools that support cross-PCN working, things like delivery of enhanced access, which networks are beginning to roll out now, as well as a potential for rapid expansion of practice estates to create extra consultation rooms and things like automation of back office functions that could help to ease the administrative workload for general practice. But it's notable that the letter from NHS England doesn't in any way guarantee new money. Uh, It talks about, open quotes, additional capital should it be made available via ICBs later in the year close quotes. So it remains to be seen how much actually materialises. Yeah, that was all quite vague, wasn't it? More concrete changes that NHS England put forward. We've got a bit more detail now about actual changes to the network contract enhanced service, which is effectively the contract under which primary care networks operate. So NHS England says it's making these changes to help free up capacity this winter in general practice. But really, they're fairly minor changes. So just run through them. There's changes to the additional roles reimbursement scheme, which means that networks can now recruit GP assistants and a digital and transformation lead. So the digital lead is basically one per PCN. And the aim is for them to help networks get the most from IT and data resources that are available to them. So they could potentially be quite useful roles and they're quite senior posts. The GP assistants are very junior roles, though, and basically they're there to provide admin support for GPs during a consultation, maybe take some basic clinical readings if needed, that kind of thing. I mean, a couple of people I've spoken to are a bit sceptical about how much this role will really help, but I guess they could work in some practices. But you know, neither of those roles are massive new additions to frontline staff to actually do appointments. And one thing to bear in mind is those GP assistants will need on-the-job training and GP supervision. You know, there isn't a pool of GP assistants out there. It's effectively a new job. So that's a big deal. And that will take a lot of GP time initially. So whether people think that will be helpful this winter is debatable. There's also some changes to the Investment Impact Fund, the IIF or the QOF for PCNs. Some indicators have been slightly adjusted to make them a bit easier to achieve. One indicator has been retired and three have been deferred until next year. I mean, interestingly, uh, one of the indicators that has been deferred until next year is the one that provided incentive payments to networks based around the number of patients who were able to get an appointment in two weeks. So that's sort of slightly at odds with what the government is talking about. So it's quite interesting. NHS England has said that those changes to the IIF will effectively free up £37 million of funding, which networks will be given as a new payment. Uh, They don't have to do anything to do that, they'll just get the money. Uh, But they have to use that to increase clinical capacity and improve access. But, um, you know, once you divide that up between the number of PCNs in England, it works out around an average of £30,000 per network. The other thing that's changed, the whole anticipatory care of the contract is basically on hold until next year now as well. But I think, you know, with the scale of the challenge people are expecting this winter, it really isn't clear that any of these measures are going to be enough to help practices get through what will be a very difficult few months, I expect. Another story to mention this week before we finish is the news that the BMA is set to ballot junior doctor members in England on industrial action in early January, probably around the 9th of January. This was very much on the cards, but just to bring listeners up to speed uh, on why we've reached this point, some of this we've talked about on previous episodes of the podcast, but the BMA has basically been campaigning and pushing hard for pay restoration for junior doctors. It's worked out that junior doctors are now paid 25% less in real terms than they were in 2008-9. 
Junior doctors were also excluded from the 4% pay deal for doctors agreed by the government this year because, like GPs, they are on a multi-year pay deal, which for junior doctors means they only got a 2% pay increase this year. Back in August, the BMA Junior Doctor Committee wrote to the then Health and Social Care Secretary, Steve Barclay, and asked the government to commit to pay restoration for junior doctors by the end of September. So clearly that deadline has been and gone, and the Junior Doctor Committee met on the 1st of October, and it voted voted to ballot members on industrial action and has actually now asked the BMA Council for approval to proceed with this. The BMA has said that the actual form of industrial action that will be taken will be decided at a later date, but I think it's pretty clear that we're talking about strikes here. Last Friday, the BMA sent out a press release explaining that it has set aside £2 million from its reserves to support all the costs associated with balloting on industrial action. Obviously, this will be firstly used by junior doctors, but those funds are also there for any future ballots on industrial action by other branches of practice in the coming months. And we do know that general practice is potentially on a path towards industrial action as well. The BMA has also set up its first ever strike hardship fund, which is being funded by donations. This money will be there to support people who want to take part in industrial action, but who may not be able to do so without getting themselves into financial difficulty. And I think the fact the BMA has done this means it's fairly safe to assume that it is preparing seriously for strikes. One other thing to mention on this is that the BMA has said that the new Health and Social Care Secretary, Therese Coffey, who we talked about earlier, has rebuffed all of its invitations to come and meet with senior members. The BMA said that this probably makes her the first health secretary in 50 years not to come and meet doctors' representatives. So make of that what you will. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick. I'm back next week when I'll be speaking with Dr. Davina Maru and Dr. Liam Loftus, who are both GP trainees and the co-founders of the Big GP Consultation. This is an initiative that brings together GP trainees and early career GPs to look at how some of the challenges facing general practice can be addressed. Do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice at gponline.com. 